What's the matter, Richard? You should be glad to be back in the Something Who bunker. The bunker isn't my home, Paul. I'm a podcaster. Ooh, we know you're a podcaster. So are we. You don't understand the implications. I edit this podcast. I walk in eternity. What's that supposed to mean? It means that it feels like I've been editing it for something like 750 years. And you are already very ancient. Perhaps it's time we find something better to do than compare Doctor Who stories. like the face of Sutek. Some vast impulse of energy has drawn us back through history. You're saying this is the bunker, but years before we knew it? Yes. But it's so different. It can't be the same place. It must be the old studio. There's something who bunker was built on the site. Maybe Sutek is forcing us to compare his story with something modern. Can't we just dial up 1980 on the podcast timeline and leave? When? 1980. That's when we're from, isn't it? We can't. Why not? Because if if Sutek isn't stopped, he'll destroy the podcast. But he didn't, did he? I mean, we know the podcast hasn't ended. Do we? Yes, of course we do. All right. If we leave now, let's hear what the podcast will sound like in 1980. It's a trick. No, that's the podcast as Sutek would leave it. A desolate sound wave on a dead server. It can't be. I'm from 1980. Are you sure? Well, I'm flattering myself a bit, but, you know, thereabouts. Can we change the course of history? To a small extent. Maybe if we like Pyramids of Mars more than the modern equivalent, Sutek will pester another podcast instead. So we've got to finish the recording? Yes. Oh, bugger. When? Or when? 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 (laughs) When? 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 You've you've done it right several times, everyone was laughing. And welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed, that sketch, to make something who. Yes, it's Something Who podcast episode 46. I'm Richard and we're back with another look at a couple of Doctor Who stories. And the first one is Fourth Doctor Tale, Pyramids of Mars from season 13. And after that, we discuss 12th Doctor story, Mummy on the Orient Express, from Series 8. So with me to discuss mummies and malign controlling presences are Big Finish author and Missing Episodes podcaster, Paul. Hello, Paul. (laughs) Good evening, all. Science and astronomy writer, Giles. I've got a cold. Aww. And making up our quartet, it's graphic designer and half of Dalek 63 to 88, Gav. When? Hello. 
<laughs> so, 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 incidentally, Gav, which half are you? Are you, are the, you the skirt section with the balls, or the top bit with the ice stalk, gun, and sucker? Um, all balls. <laughs> That's a very personal question to ask. Ask the young man, Richard. Yeah. I was looking at that picture of was it Power of the Daleks where they're sort of sitting in the bottom half of the Daleks with the top half missing no, no top top offs on the floor beside them or something like that mm. Mm. provoked that thought anyway so let's start with Pyramids of Mars uh, which was written by Stephen Harris or <clears throat> as we know him Robert Holmes uh, and directed by Paddy Russell and uh, this is the third of the three extant Paddy Russell stories that we've looked at on Something Who and we enjoyed the other two and for all we know, the massacre was great too. So uh, let, let, let's see what we think of this one. And, well, I, I mean, he, here's something novel for you. I have actually seen this story since it was broadcast. <laughs> it, it, in fact, this one comes bang in the middle of my period as, as, a, as a young fan. So I was seven, just on the verge of being eight, and loving Doctor Who when it came on. I was reading Target books and getting Weetabix cards. I mean, how much Weetabix did I eat that year? <laughs> and I was about to receive my first Doctor Who annual. I, I, I guess probably watched it mostly on the VHS version, which came out in the mid-80s. I mean, I did watch it for this, obviously, but, but I, I mean, I could probably almost have recited it from those many viewings. Your histories, maybe with Pyramids of Mars? Well, I was on holiday once, and we went to this quarry. <laughs> no. Um, no, nothing interesting. I, I suppose it would have been the VHS release. Yeah, mm. having already read the book. Yeah. Yes, I read the book exhaustively many, many times over. Being a bit of a Egypt nut, anyway, as as young boys often are. Yes, and then eventually I must have caught up with it on VHS at some. I'm trying to think, it never hadn't had a terrestrial repeat, and it's too, it's just before my time, so, in terms of watching mm. the series, so, so yes, it must have been when it came out on VHS eventually, so I probably didn't see it till the early 90s, as a thought. Richard just implied it was an early release in the VHS. Yeah, I didn't have a VHS recorder until, oh. until about 1990, so. Okay. This is quite a, a bombshell. How have we not known this before? What, what sort of Doctor Who fan are you? Oh, quite, yeah. My, my parents it's not a didn't question. believe in didn't them. have a VHS player that wasn't a, No, no, didn't no, believe no, in no. Well, you know, all the things not to believe in is, is up there. Uh, Gaff? Um, yes, my dad would have had the VHS, and it's one of a handful that I don't think I remember ever seeing for the first time. It's just one of those things that I've always remembered. So it's really hard to get a fresh new take on it because it's just so familiar, like like you said. I was just thinking, it suddenly occurs to me that I probably actually first saw this in a convention screening room. Oh, yes. It's, uh, it's the most likely option. I had to get the DVD, DVD down off the shelf, or rather out of the cardboard box, because my BritBox subscription unexpectedly lapsed. <clears throat> uh, you didn't need to know that. And I noticed on the... Uh, on the DVD packaging, it said that it had been voted the story fans most wanted to see, which I guess is why it was released relatively early in the range. And I wonder, I mean, was it also released early in the VHS range because it was known to be a favourite? And as such, it's held up as a as a fan fave for several decades. It hasn't risen and fallen as much as some other stories. Was it on that list that, or, or one of the polls that went round fandom asking which fans wanted... Which, 
released. Which time? Video or DVD? Uh, video, sorry. Because that was... Didn't they ask everyone at Longleat? And everyone, right. they all said... Revenge of the Cybermen. No, they said something of the Cybermen, and Revenge was the only one they had, I think. Ah. <laughs> something, yeah, something went wrong. There was a... <laughs> it wasn't as simple as, the, as, as fans assuming Revenge must have been great. <laughs> and then been disappointed. Well, I think we remember they wanted cyber. They wanted Cybermen, and they wanted Tom Baker. So the people at the limited options at the BBC thought, well, obviously this has got to be the best story ever. <laughs> and and they were right. Yeah. How's that working out for yeah. you, as the children say? Yeah. So uh, from my memory of being in sort of organised fandom in the early to mid eighties, I, th- I I would say that Pyramids was always kind of held up as being a good story, and and that's probably helped. By the Terence Dix novelization, mm. which you know, I mean, I, I don't remember it particularly, but but I, I, it was one of the earlier ones, so it's it, you know it's generally one of the ones you'd have put a lot into. Yeah, it's interesting that that for for, for you, uh, Paul and Giles, it's almost like a missing episode that, that you were sort of repatriated with eventually, right? You know, you know, it's like my experience of the of the Troutons of of having read the the books and then maybe sort of eventually coming across them, or, or maybe the odd episode or two of them later on. It's sort of weird that that we have that relationship with the show in the in the UK that we we weren't actually around when it was shown. It's a bit haphazard when it turned up eventually. Mm. So who was to kick us off? You know, in terms of thoughts on on this particular viewing. Oh, all right then. I can follow my own train of thought to conclusion. As I was saying, the fan, you know, it's not gone down in fan estimation over time, and it hasn't gone down in mine. It's it's terrific, isn't it? I think it's kind of like. Not the pinnacle of the Hinchcliffe era for me, but almost like the uber Hinchcliffe story, the archetypal, both the archetype and the summit, <laughs> the zenith, if you will. Obviously, I Talons is my favourite, but Talons is not typical. Every time I go back and watch uh, any Hinchcliffe, I, re- I realise how atypical Talons is. Robert Holmes going completely mad and being un- let off the leash right at the end. But this, this is the bread and butter of the Hinchcliffe here, isn't it? Mm. What I what strikes me though makes me ask questions about Holmes himself. For me, there are two different Holmes stories. There are his own, which were mostly written before and after his time as script editor, mm. although Deadly Assassin and Talons creep into that category. And then there are the ones he rewrote while he was a script editor, and they are very different. The ones he rewrote as script editor, are, a they tend to be the ones that the fans loved most because they're the ones that are most straightly gothic horror. But they tend to be lacking a lot of things we think of as Holmesy tropes elsewhere. They don't have anywhere near as much humour. They don't have the, the, the Holmesian double acts. I'm not saying that you can't tell it's him, because of course you can. But they, it's him in a different mode somehow. It's not lesser him. He's pushing the gothic horror that his producer wanted and doing it as well as anybody else ever did. No, well, better than anybody else ever did. Hmm. But I wonder if he was... Feeling constrained. I wonder if he was keen to put a funny, could he, you know, could he put a funny poacher in, or a funny, another funny brother of Scarman, or does he, or would you? Does anyone know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a rhetorical question. There may be no answer to it, but uh, I I wonder if there's a bit of confirmation bias in what we think of as a as a Holmes characteristic, and therefore we highlight the examples Mm -hmm. of it, like the double act. But from my understanding, this is as Holmesian crafted as they come in terms of him seeing his idea through to conclusion. Because he conceived the idea, or jointly conceived ideas with Lewis Griefer, 
and set the task of Lewis Griefer to write him a an, an Egypt themed uh, gothic. He, he said he wanted uh, horrors roaming through studio fog uh, and just had that atmosphere. And Lewis Griefer went away and did his thing and came back. And although it wasn't the sole reason, because there were, you know, he was ill and then he went abroad, it wasn't what Holmes wanted or felt. There were no monks, no werewolf, and no. (coughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so Holmes threw out all of it, including his characters, and started again. So my understanding is it is essentially Holmes doing precisely what he wanted and taking it back over when someone didn't fulfill his requirements. That's that's not to say that Philip Hinchcliffe wasn't steering things, obviously, but I, I don't I don't get the sense that Holmes was constrained. I I think that that when it wasn't turning into what he wanted, he he made sure it was. So I think he did precisely what he was uh, intent on doing from the beginning. I don't want to get too sidetracked though. But what what I was getting at more was that I feel like Holmes had one sort of style in his mm. early days in the program through the Pertwee era, his stories stand out by nature of being quite satirical. Mm. Also, you know, various flavors of humor, satire and and broader character stuff. And he sort of, and you could argue he returned to that in some ways after he was script editor, but during the time he was script editor, particularly when most of the stories that have, that didn't have his name on, but which we know he wrote almost the entire thing, tend to be rather straighter. You may not agree with that, but if you do agree with that, because I feel that's the case, that I was wondering whether it was because he was rewriting somebody else's work that he did it in a different style, or was it just because... I, th- I think it's tonally quite similar to Spearhead from Space. It's, you know, it's, it, it's, quite, it's quite a long way from, say, Carnival of Monsters. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say it's completely atypical, but it, there's no attempt at comedy whatsoever, and, he, and even Tom Baker... Is playing it absolutely deadly earnest. Yeah, I, th- I think what I'm talking about is the stories like uh, it's got more in common with Ark in Space. Yes, I wonder whether it's just because, to some extent, he was t- having to turn it out under under pressure, and they were very much doing that boilerplate thing of what hammer horror movie are we going to rip off this mm. this week? Yeah, to my mind, it had more. I was relieved to find there were more witty lines in it than I. <laughs> immediately remembered because I I went into this actually with somewhat of a heavy heart because it's it's not one I watched with great pleasure I can think of many many more stories and I, I'm I, I think I skew more towards like the the later the stuff when when we've had this a related discussion about the stuff when Leela comes in that's you know I just feel that that that's Professor Higgins Eliza Doolittle relationship works mm-hmm. and it's not I, I feel i feel bad about saying that but it, it just it feels like it's slightly heavy going that it's all taking itself so seriously and i quite like the <laughs> i was quite quite glad for the the wittier moments that um that did crop up in it and mm-hmm. um interesting and little things like the marx brothers um gag in episode four that you just think oh yeah there there's there's some doctor who that i like um <laughs> Yeah, just a silly. That's really interesting because I think of this as a as a funny story. Mm. I mean, it's it's deadly earnest, but I th- but but I think all of the best Doctor Who 
take the serious stuff really seriously hmm. and the 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 levity is played straight hmm. mm-hmm. and uh, yeah i mean there's there's loads of fun and to be fair that that that's not a lot of it is not from um the script there's there's a great deal of improvisation yeah hmm. and i think the chances are that if you name a funny moment like the priest hole and all the it's mm. that that it's improvisation or worked out in rehearsals i should say yes yeah but uh, yeah it's interesting well liz slayton's trying very hard isn't she i mean or or at least you know she's a lot of the stuff that she does is is sort of bringing levity whilst tom baker's doing his deadly earnest stuff mm. but i think they would it's, they, yes i think they would have worked out oh, together yeah, though, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah so she's not thinking tom <laughs> i need to lighten this up a bit mm. tom's gone into a into a strange place. I would come down right in the middle there. I how very interesting to hear. I, I wouldn't. I thought we were all going to be agreed on this, like the rest of fandom has been throughout time. <laughs> it's um, and it sounds like we all are in the sense that we all think it's really good, but we're not quite sure why. We're going to end up splitting into factions on just whether. <laughs> I, for me, it's it's the right, the right sort of balance. It's mm. as you say, the funny bits are mainly witty dialogue and character based, mm-hmm. but. One reason I like it is because it is so. It's not that it's straight, but it takes a, it takes a serious situation and treats it very seriously. Mm. For example, if a bog standard Doctor Who story might say, "This is the greatest threat we've ever faced. Mm. This is going to destroy. This could destroy the universe. This is awful," and you wouldn't feel mm. it. Mm. Whereas here, without having seeing you know hordes of millions of Daleks approach on the horizon. Just with a very small contained story with a small cast, you absolutely believe it when mm. Doctor Who tells us that he'll eat this planet and then move on <laughs> and do the rest of the universe one planet at a time. And thus it deserves for the Doctor to treat it with this unusual amount of gravitas and for him to have to go to unusual lengths to impress upon the seriousness of the situation on Sarah Jane. And it breaks through into every area of the story, even despite the fact that it's... Uh, <laughs> It's supposed to be an old-fashioned Hammer horror-style story. It's very good as science fiction as well. It has a few good science moments. Mm. For the first time, after 13 years, somebody has a decides they need to explain why they can't just bugger yeah. off. Yeah. Which is interesting. I don't know what prompted Robert H. to suddenly feel like this needed addressing. Perhaps it occurred to him in the middle of the story in, in a way that it never had before. I, mean, I suppose, is it because they have to use the TARDIS? It, during the story, and most of the time they don't. It, it it was because there was a there was a threat to history, and he felt that the rhetoric was always exactly what Sarah said was that we know the Earth wasn't destroyed now because we're from the future. Which I guess is why I didn't one reason we didn't like writing historical ones. Mm. Just, yeah. just thinking. Well, that and the re- that and the research. Thinking about pseudo pseudo historicals as we'd now call them, and just trying to think. I mean, if you go back, okay, there's the time medlands stuff like that but I mean the time you know I'm, I'm just trying to think how many there, there have really been where they've gone there under their own steam because the time boy is slightly different because there you've got own um sorry links scooping people up it, it, it is slightly addressed in the time warrior homes again mm. but slightly uh, more quietly um, the doctor just has the comment that if you give them these weapons now they'll have much more advanced weapons by mm. the whatever he says right. 16th century mm. i can't remember what he says but it's yeah 
Apart from that, we've all forgotten that that line's in there. It's certainly, when, if it's in dialogue, the average viewer is not is going to be in one ear and out yeah. the other. So here we get to see it. Yeah. Well, and whether or not they understand it, they they certainly feel it, don't they? Mm. But it's also, it's very economically written, that scene. Um, I should have written down the dialogue, then I could have proved how economically written <laughs> it is. But like like all the big moments, the the science fiction dilemmas, the the moral dilemmas, everything is... Yes, written with great precision and economy and force in a way of w- in which <laughs> some other stories don't achieve, including the one we're moving on to. The, the, there, was, there was a line in this, in episode two, that I liked, where I think Sarah says, Egyptian mummies building a rocket, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, and, and it, I mean, it does feel at times that there are crazy things going on, but but as we've as we've all said at different times, because it's done in a very, you know, everybody in the story believes in the story, mm. so it carries us along with it. I think. I always find it fascinating. I, I like the archaeology, no pun intended, of sifting through the early versions and and seeing the echoes of of what came before. And and uh, pyramids of Mars fundamentally doesn't make any sense. But I'll forgive all its flaws because it's brilliant and I love Here it. Here we go. <laughs> it doesn't though. It, it makes yeah, no, no sense. What the, yeah. a pyramid on Mars imprisoning Sutek is just is just nonsense. And then Sutek, a hundred million miles, he can he can telekinetically or telepathically speak to <laughs> Mars, but he can't somehow leave his prison on in Egypt, even though he's beaming his brain into the TARDIS and he's beaming his brain onto Mars and he'd do That's... whatever he want. He can levitate the TARDIS key from 2,000 miles away but he can't leave. Anyway. That's a very that's a very good point but it's, remember where you were. That's a very good point but it's not what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say, if he can beam his mind across that distance, how come something as silly as the speed of light is used as the science fiction explanation oh, yeah. for why <laughs> other doctors can win at the end? That must mean his brain is moving faster than light. Yeah. Which rather undercuts the point I was going to make about what a nice little sciencey moment that was, and how you <laughs> would be really pleased with it. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, sorry, as you were. Uh, no, all I, I was going to say was um, it's interesting then discovering the reason that that this nonsensical story has been reassembled out of these jigsaw puzzle pieces by Robert Holmes, because the original story was that it was a there was a space rocket being built by this space agency. I can't think of the name of it. It's called the Beta Wave or something like that. <laughs> mm. And they were sending a rocket to Mars. Originally, there was a whole plot about uh, grain growing on Egypt. Grain growing in the deserts of Egypt, they were going to use to terraform the deserts of Mars. That was the logical right. link between Egypt and Mars. So they were building a rocket that was part of a space program. Then Sutek was going to hijack the rocket and fire it into a pyramid that was on Mars where his old mate Horus was in suspended animation he just wanted to to kill him to as an act of revenge the framework a logical framework exists from a story that got swept away but i like the fact that sort of like that you can see the shadows of the mm. original storyline mm. just I, been repurposed into a thing that I feel a bit sorry for makes no sense. Lewis Griffith there because it sounds like he put rather too much thought into it it really th- thought tried to think because when you're presented with these shopping list stories I mean I, I, sorry I mean it's not technically a shopping list it, two or three elements doesn't make a shopping list but you know Egypt and Mars is <laughs> is enough to be a oh hang on a minute <laughs> what it actually done some giving it some proper thought 
It was actually it's Egyptian. Doc- it's not what Doctor Who needs. It needs to be much simpler than that. And um, poor, poor bloke. It was actually Robert Egypt and the Moon originally, and then they switched it to yes. Egypt and yeah, Mars. But it reminds me of. Uh, it's slightly tangential, but it reminds me of that Russell T. Davis assessing the Web of Fear, and he said the Yeti and web guns, the Yeti and web, it doesn't go together. So in you know under under my stewardship, he said we'd have scotched that because there's no logic to it, but he's aware that it's brilliant and it mm. works, mm. and that's the thing with pyramids of Mars. It's there's, there's he'd, all the logic. He'd have is, had giants. He'd have had giant spiders in the mm. under, underground, yeah, because then because you could, then have, you could web, have webs spraying yeah. webs. Yeah, yes. So wow, sometimes well, mm, the connective yes. tissue falls away, uh, and the this is why Doctor Who is brilliant, and why sometimes it isn't brilliant. Because it is all about these bizarre juxtapositions, mm-hmm. isn't it? That no other program would <laughs> would ever be in a position to be trying to juxtapose these things. It's not just a time travel thing. It's just somehow become intrinsic to the format of the program. It's not necessarily taking two things from different times and putting them together. It's, it's different genres clashing. I, I don't know. It just seems to become accepted that Doctor Who is all about things that don't belong together being smushed together. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, I mean, yes, I'll be coming on to this uh, related point later about the f- it's making these unrelated things fit. That can make, for me, a story can stand or fall. It might, a, story, a story might be superficially quite interesting and diverting, but if the found, it hasn't got the solid foundations, of, then it, it never works for me. Mm. And that's why sometimes these stories that are less than the sum of their parts fail on, on some level which you can't quite put your finger on, but you just feel this, these things don't go together somehow. Anyway. So it's very odd, this this prehistory of this this early story, the pre-existing story, because it almost sounds a bit like the vampire from space, kind of that, that thing, you know, the predecessor of Claws of Axel's kind of this this whole thing with grain on... like, And it was a near-future set, so presumably it was... Was it actually going to be a unit story? Or at least... Yes, the, it- the Brigadier was going to be right, future. yeah, tangentially. Uh, space agency. Hmm. Uh, the gray, the grain came later. I'm struggling to remember what the first iteration was. I know there was a sarcophagus in the British Museum at one point. Yeah, the like... original. So I think the sarcophagus originally had a mummy in it, hmm. and then later, in the later version, the sarcophagus they hoped had the seeds of this ancient grain mm. in that was going to solve all their problems and then when they opened it it let out this ancient evil i think right i'm a bit hazy on it one thing i picked up on was that they said oh there was an egyptian mania in the early 70s to some extent because of the tutankhamun yeah. you know the tate exhibition had been at the british museum in 72 which richard did you go do you remember no no too far north. Too far north. Think. Apparently, I went, but um, but I would have been a babe in arms at the time, or a toddler in arms. So I was taken, but I remember nothing. But so apparently, they 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 sort of they cottoned onto the fact that well, hang on, Egypt doesn't allow the export of um, mm. antiquities these days. So they then thought, oh well, what if it was brought back by by a Victorian or Edwardian archaeologist and has lain unopened, and then that was the springboard for the whole Marcus Scarman thing when Bob Holmes came to redo it in his in his style. But it's it's an odd you know, the the origin of it. And the other thing that does come up is the ancient astronauts 
aspects mm. of it. And I was quite interested. I picked up on something to do with there was a what was this guy's name? Henri Lotte, who was a French archaeologist and explorer who found these frescoes in Algeria in 1958. So this is quite well pre von Daniken because von Daniken didn't really start doing his stuff until the late 60s and giving Switzerland a bad name. And um, but he found these these wacky frescoes in a place called Tassili in the Algerian desert and they include a well what appears to be a sort of space suited creature with a somewhat mono brow cyclopean head um <laughs> yeah monobrow uh which sounds a bit like it might have been an ex- I think in the production notes they they suggest it was the inspiration for the mummy design but it reminds me a bit more of the of the spacesuit when right. when Scarman mm. first appears, it looks quite. And he studied calling this the Great Martian God, so that may be the first real connection between sort of Mars and ancient Egypt that was kind of hanging around in the prehistory, so far as I can figure out. Okay, what year was the was it Viking that took the photos of the Mars face and the Mars pyramids? Seventy six, mm. I think. But that's 76. afterwards. So yeah, because I briefly wondered whether that's where it had come from and then I realised I didn't think the dates lined up mm. that the Doctor Who predated it mm. I can tell you lots of other things that aren't relevant or true as well Well, it's one of those funny things that Cido- that whole Cydonia region was yeah, suddenly came yeah, came to prominence after It launched in August the 20th 1975 Mm. and this is shown in October so I mean it it might have been a thing that was in people's consciousness Mars Mars probably was that's true but it didn't get there until it would have been at least until until the following year yeah yeah. spring of spring of 76 because one of them touched down on Independence Day if I remember rightly I think one of the landers and most of the orbiter photos didn't come back until after that they were kind of they were orbiting for a few years. So. Tell me if I'm being premature, but are we able to move on? We, have we covered Mars and and Egyptology? Yeah, have yeah, we move fine. On to, to to mummies. Yeah, go on. No, well, I mean, you see, I was hoping to rewatch some of the classic mummy films for tonight, so that I could actually make a positive, tangible contribution, but I didn't. So, can somebody tell me what they where they think the mummy stuff in this comes from? Does it for all the allusions to hammer or indeed <laughs> universal monsters what does it owe to the mummy or indeed the mummy or the mummy but that was made 20 years later so <laughs> probably it seems to me and I've, I've, I'm not coming from a position of great knowledge here but that those those great big lumbering robots don't to me sort of seem to tie in particularly to mummies or, or or any of that it's they're more kind of just horrific figures i mean the bandages obviously but other than that they seem do to you be mean, the, the wrong physical shape do you mean visually or visually or yeah ser- uh, well, 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 well visually but, but also i suppose because they, they, they don't necessarily yeah i mean they're, they're not a kind of ancient threat in themselves are they they're, no. they're just they're just sort of I'm dumb that, servants yeah i'm thinking that because the plot doesn't treat them like hammer no. mummies apart from the very first scene where we the one time we see it coming out of a sarcophagus. Yeah. Apart from that, yeah. they might as well not be mummies. And I think that's probably why the costume designers didn't feel the need to make them look like the classic mummy, which we get 
in um, in the Orange Express story, yeah. they go all out. They probably thought, well, we might as well lean more into, ro- you know, make 50-50 robots and mummies rather than... Because there's never really any attempt by the story to make you believe... For example, that could have been a completely different story and a, another valid way of doing it. And to be honest, if the debt to Hammer horror was as strong as fans unthinkingly assume it is, in not just this story, but the whole of Hinchcliffe era, then there would be some sort of question mark over whether these were undead bodies. But there never is. They always look like robots. Mm. The script doesn't, as I say, the script doesn't raise that question. So the the visual design doesn't bother either. And it becomes something completely superficial, and barely even superficial. It, it's funny as well, because uh, it's not part of the ancient aliens storyline it, it it doesn't quite mesh there's no suggestion that we get our mummy mythology because Sutek <laughs> has robots that look like mummies there's oh there's there's no there's again there's no through line to that logic no robert holmes originally suggested that lewis griefer's story had mummies that were robots but then griefer wrote it that they were creatures they were living things i think the eye of horus was a weapon that turned people into mummies in a sort of immortalized immortalization as the dead kind of process and that the the mummies would break out and feed on people so in that there is a version that would have had mummies stalking and eating people and being living things but then robert holmes flipped it back and said i told you i wanted robots so we got robots and yeah there's no reason to it Apart from being mummies, they do work well. I mean, you know, we were we were laughing when we when we looked at Mordred Undead at the sort of way that they were trying to make those creatures gl- glide, and there was no real sense. With with, with this, the, you know, the the camera work and the way the mummies sort of lumber, again, it doesn't really bear much examination to to mummies in other genres, but it is very threatening. Mm. Uh, they they're, they're well realised, but still. Not that much like mummies. I mean, no. most Doctor Who monsters in most Doctor Who stories move like Hammer Horror mummies. They <laughs> they lumber with their arms outstretched, you know, even yeah. when they don't need to. We finally get a story where they would be justified in moving like mummies. And they don't. No. So, funny. They, I mean, they should be ridiculous, but somehow they're terrifying, was was my thought. Bob was clearly what he was doing, but he, he's simplifying it. He's simplifying it, and he's taken a story with a really well-thought-out, logical, watertight premise... You might not like it. It might be a very good one, but it was, I think, those things, based on what you've said. It's all new to me. And he's turned, and he's kind of removed a lot of the logic. He's removed almost everything he didn't need and just kept the things that serve the atmosphere that he wants to create, mm. the tone of the story. And I feel like that's what he... I feel that's what he always does as script editor and also when he's building a story up from scratch. I, I often cite... Pyramids of Mars as it's when I get into discussions with people about films that one of us likes and the other one dislikes and the person who dislikes will inevitably resort to explaining all of the logical and technical reasons why the film or TV series or whatever it is is objectively flawed and I'm always reminded of Pyramids of Mars as, as that example for me where I, I absolutely love it, and it, it, it is flawed in, in umpteen different ways from a narrative, technical perspective, but I don't care and it doesn't matter, and, and people telling me that these things don't make any sense, it exemplifies the fact that 
that we like what we like mm -hmm. and the logic behind it is either accepted or discarded or overlooked depending on our feelings and that our feelings come ahead of the logic some of the time a lot of the time sure charles you were trying to say something, i was I just going to get back to the thing of um the relations to the hammer movie and so on and and the thing uh -huh. is that to my mind what he's done is is he's he's actually made marcus scarman to, to my mind he takes on a lot of the roles of of the mummy in turn, and a lot right. of the characteristics of the mummy as played by like Christopher Lee. I mean, obviously yeah. Christopher Lee was bandaged mm. up and so on, but in terms of some of, some of the things that... Yeah, but some of the specifics, like the, the shooting moment, which I know is quoted as being a direct lift of when he gets shot, uh, I think mm. is a pretty much a direct lift from or copy of the, a moment that happens in the Hammer movie, although it's then again... Well, it was on the poster, put it that way, I think. Bullets going through his body and he keeps all walking kind of thing. So I think some of that stuff got transferred because he's got the the sort of undead pallor and everything. Yeah. And I think then the the robot mummies are there just for just kind of for the iconography of it. What a terrific observation! I think you've cracked it. At various times, I was my mind was wandering off to talons and making a comparison between the two. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's just if they if it genuinely was reminding me of of it, but or if it's just because I'm obsessed with talons, I'd rather be talking about that. Like an unprepared child in a GCSE exam. To answer <laughs> the question, why is Pyramids of Mars, I must first talk about... No, uh, I mean, right from the first episode, the way everyone reacts to the the Egyptian. Yeah. Even though to just sort of referring to him by his nationality mm. rather than as if he was a person. And and his, and his characterization as, somebody, as a primitive who, who worships this figure who's just from a more advanced civilization mm. as a god. It's all, that's all there, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, there was more. <laughs> but he right down to the maybe at the other end of the story with Sutek's dialogue where he comes out with he talks the same sort of ripe pulpy villain stuff that Bob Holmes specializes mm. in and which um, say mm. Magnus Greel comes out with but it's just kept the right side of melodrama mm. and the dialogue is just slightly slightly less melodramatic mm. which means that Gabriel Wolf is able to give a less in turn give a less melodramatic performance mm. and that same grandiose language you know miserable worms and crush and insects and things mm. suddenly seems very threatening rather than something you would be happy to laugh mm. at yeah, yeah so, it's a stunning performance as i say obviously robert holmes but uh, but in a different mode and yes gabriel hmm. yeah i mean the elephant in the room is that part four isn't quite as good as the other three i think mm. and, I, and i do think that 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 Sutek is more menacing when it's just the voice. I mean, when you when you see a bit too much of him at the start of episode four, I don't think he's quite as effective. You think? I was thinking, uh, what I thought was, I wasn't looking forward to episode four because I thought this is 25 minutes of puzzle solving. Mm, right. It's um, just death to the Daleks all over again. And yet I was quite pleased it starts with what felt like a five or ten minutes of yeah, yeah. Doctor Who and Sutek. Mm, yeah. Which is one of the best bits. Yes. Okay. To see the doctors reduced so abjectly. And Sut and I, I don't think Sutek loses anything. Mm. I mean, to be honest, there's not been. We haven't really had much of a feel for him until that point, And I don't think he loses anything. And I slightly forgot the him. fact that he does, you know, and he does actually take over the doctor. He, yeah, it's yeah, only, it's only the distraction when he already, when he thinks the doctor's already. Yeah. And he just does, mm. just like that. Um, there's no. The doctor doesn't even have time to mm. fight. It's all. Mm. Okay. Yeah, no, you're wrong there. <laughs> you're wrong, you're wrong, and you're a grotesquely ugly. 
<laughs> Sorry, that's a quote. <laughs> Gav knows where I got I that do. from. I do. I know, it's the day-to-day. I don't know. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, episode four, the traditional format is that it accelerates towards a physical confrontation. Uh, I mean, yes, okay, we do end up with two mummies punching each other in a big explosion. <laughs> but in terms of the broad structure of the episode, comparing again to Talon's there's the big laser battle and the the escape and all that going on. And so instead of building towards a physical confrontation or a series of physical set pieces, it's an intellectual <laughs> series. Mm. And that all of the physical stuff is in the Earth environment. It, it, it's all sort of very visceral, earthly pursuits, you know, poaching and explosions and, and things. And then you get to the alien world and it's a really interesting switch, the kind of thing that they have done in other stories, usually in a six-parter, to yep. to give you something fresh, either at the beginning or the tail end. And the story takes an interesting turn. Yeah, I just think it, it freshens it up because I don't know what you'd have done with another episode of Running Around the Priory. Mm, I think yeah. it'd have been lesser for it. I think I think you're right that it is it is needed, and it is a clever idea to make it more of a mental battle but it could have been better and perhaps it was just pressure of time mm. because what would have been better is some kind of tangible battle of wills or intellects between the two but of course how do you ever show that in Doctor mm. Who? Nobody's ever shown that any, mm. other than by Doctor Who and you know we end, the other way of doing this is the end of Brain and Morbius mm, yes. where they both grab hold of a, either end of a you know some sort of high-tech seesaw mm. and it just depends <laughs> Yeah, there's never ride. any effective. Yeah. And so, really, he, it feels to me like he knew what he wanted tonally, but we mm. do end up with these silly, just basically riddles. Mm-hmm. If, if you could have come up with some stronger analogy for that. Well, just before. to f- flip back again to the Lewis Griefer version, they were um, making their way through the labyrinth of the pyramid, right? Avoiding traps and mm. things like yeah. that. So it was, it yeah. was. Uh, yeah, that might have been. More interesting, like literally, literally Death of the Daleks, then, which was well, a pyramid. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking of that. You've got Death of the Daleks, and you've also got, I suppose, five Doctors later on. I mean, I don't think any of them <laughs> works especially brilliantly. Into well, they don't work because it's a very linear process. Mm, yeah, I mean, unless you ca- the, the most you can do is carefully arrange the puzzles so they get a bit harder. Yeah, but it's not. What sort of puzzles are they? Are they are they real puzzles? So the audience are in with a chance of solving it, which makes it more like an Agatha Christie. It never really works as drama. Mm. It works as children's TV. Mm. So, no, I think this is probably... haven't watched Death to the Daleks recently. I, I feel like this works much better than that. Yeah. That is a bit more like a series of fairground um, attractions, isn't it, than than this? Or a fun house. I don't know. Is it? I can't remember. <laughs> I, th- I think it's about the same, to be honest. Mm. But just, but, but, there's but, no it's, checkerboard it's, floor here. No, mm. it's, it's not quite so well realised. You know, the lumbering things that sort of appear aren't all that brilliant in Death of the Daleks. No. Well, it's... There's there's no very clever puzzles that rely on an intimate knowledge of how Pi doesn't work. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But you've got the the old riddle of... Yeah. Oh, yes. One person lying. Mm. uh, That's a a fun intellectual there. I mean, the viewer doesn't get any time whatsoever to solve it because the doctor just says, well, I've I've heard this one before. So, (laughs) moves on. It's funny because what you were saying about the navigating the pyramid, it is rather strange that, and did I blink and miss it, we don't get any establishing shots of this pyramid on Mars. No. no. 
which is really it seems like an omission to me that if I was going to make a criticism of you know it feels like one doesn't the, the Carls gets mixed mm. up the fact that you don't really get the unless you're paying attention you lose track of the fact well hang on Sutex in Egypt yeah they're in mm. they're in England and we don't really get any further connection to that and then we don't see the you know we don't see the fact there's this pyramid on Mars. Yeah, there's only one pyramid in it. Keys, yes, yeah. Stargrove. Yes. But it feels like, well, hang on, they've... There should be two pyramids w- which have a sort of identical visual style. Possibly, one of them yes. Each, one of them Hammer home the fact that the Osirians had this effect on, on human evolution. It just feels like... Along with everybody else. The occasional establishing shot would not go amiss to remind you of who is where. Mm. And sure. and perhaps in, particularly in the once they're on Mars... If you did see a, a pyramid standing on, standing in the midst of this wasteland of Mar- Martian landscape, yeah. then you might get more of an impression that okay, they are making their way through this. Yeah, sort sort of I, seeds of Death Star maybe or something. Hmm. With it, with the Earth and the Moon. Hmm. I probably shouldn't admit this because it's I mean, it does say more about me than the story. But it took me a lot, quite a few viewings as a young fan to for it really to hammer home. The fact that Sutek is in Egypt, not on Mars. Mm. I, no matter how many times I watched it or read, I would always mm. re- remember it as him being in the pyramid mm. on Mars, because that's obviously where he is at the end of the story. They track him down to his lair. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I. I must be a bit thick. But well, I, I, I think, think it's because I think it's part shots, not think helped by point. that. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if the general public, who obviously uh, <laughs> don't have. I have the advantage of a thorough grounding in Doctor Who type things, <laughs> which is only undercut by my natural inclination to pay attention. Can I return to uh, the, uh, the tone? Some time back I was expressing my thought. This is one of the most serious-minded stories, mm. apart from bits, little, occasional bits of business on the part of the lead actors. Mm. But what I remember is that the Doctor is very stern in mm. this. And very alien, yeah. and indeed, to presage where we're going with the next story, he's, he's, he's at his most alien in inverted commas, and at his most twelfth doctorish, which is um, yeah, mm. snappy, mm. not really un- <laughs> seemingly not understanding or or respecting human emotions. And there is it, luckily he's not like that all the way through. There are moments of that, and again, they're very economically written and not overplayed. Again, without giving too much away I, that is not how, what I feel about the, the second story we're discussing today I think you've given a fair amount yeah. away <laughs> well, I mean, you've, you've, you've given us our first link anyway between the two stories but it's written nicely and played very nicely between those two so you never feel it's, it is only just moments isn't it There's the, they set it up in the first episode where Doctor Who is <laughs> I love that establishing shot what does the camera do does it zoom up, up on him or something where he's just standing looking like mm. he walks in eternity mm. while standing stock still yeah. in the middle of the... Yeah, He's got his head face. bowed, hasn't he? Yes. yes. And he lifts his head. Soon be middle-aged. Yes. It it always feels like that scene follows on from something else. Hmm. Right. And I... Well, it's, it's, it seems to be presaging. It's there to presage the mood of this story, except mm. it's, it's written as though it's he's just pissed off <laughs> that he has to... <laughs> He feels like he's one of the Brigadier's companions rather than vice Well, yeah, it's, it's mm. odd that this goes from... I... That, that they have Planet of Evil in the middle, because it, it, it works mm. far better as a... Was that a late switch? I don't know. Good question. That's why I forget that it does go mm. in there. Um, but, but yeah, it was, but it, it was far better as a take-off from Terror of the Zygons as being arguably the last mm. 
the last hurrah really of the unit gang as a whole and although they probably didn't know it at the time no but it's written as if as if they know mm. and they're trying to soften the blow to prepare us for the fact that we may not be seeing the, mm. so much of the brigadier unit anymore well so you've also got this bizarre thing about well because i'm because we're going back to see the brigadier and unit then we have to say well we've traveled in time but not in space so we're on the same plot as unit hq but it's a different then, building so now you've got to say well it burnt down but then you, your problem is does that mean well unit hq can't be any older than 1912 when they would have rebuilt it but then that doesn't really co- coincide with any of the buildings that we've seen being no. unit and hq a, that's great that's yes how many have we said? Was there any? And it's, this could be a podcast in itself. Maybe Gav could tell us. <laughs> and in fact, I'm going to say one more thing before he does. <laughs> they tie themselves in not. They tie themselves in knots here because we're in a building that looks very old. But because the plot requires it not to be old, yeah. Um, they have to say that it's not a real pre- priest hole. It's some sort of Victorian folly priest hole. That is right, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and um, Gothic folly, yeah. So it's all terribly confused, and then it's replaced by another building that actually looks older than. It would be if it replaced this one. No matter which of the unit HQs we're talking about. Hmm. How many times does unit HQ look like a second division, a grade two star listed country mansion? Five How doctors. Many times does it look like it's, it? It's, it's oh, is, well, is yeah, the three doctors and the five doctors the same building? I, I meant to check. Don't, and, oh, I don't, mm, think. don't think so. Because I always the three doctors disappearing into the black hole is always the unit HQ that I picture mm. in my mind. Mm. It's similar enough in The Five Doctors to mm. believe it. And it's similar enough to Stargrove to believe it. But you could leave that. I mean, Stargrove's left burning the Priory. I don't know why they didn't just say it was burnt out and yeah, re- could be a partly shift. rebuilt, rather than being completely... Well, especially, anyway, especially when the Doctor has that line about, oh, this room, for instance, could be converted into a lab. Yeah, yeah that's... Yeah, um, would be handy that's for... That's improvised. I, yes. That I th- Tom Baker. Mm. Oh, is time. it? Okay, right. But the uh, oh, the building's not that old. It's a it's more. a Victorian Gothic fantasy. Apparently, okay. apparently the original did burn down, and that's this is the eighteen forty eight rebuild. I see. In oh. sort of French chateau style, kind of with a bit of Gothic. And this is Stargroves, which I was really hoping I had been to mm. because I could have had another instalment in my series of Paul visits, but I hadn't. I'd been to the one from Seeds of Doom, which obviously is not the same one because even in Doctor Who they wouldn't repeat the same location twice in a. That's Athelhampton, isn't it? It Athelhampton is. House, yes. Which I'll save that glorious it. anecdote when we get to Seeds of Doom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think it's ever been open to the public particularly. I, I, I'm going to say something now that's blindingly obvious, but but I. I so I do love Bernard Archer doing mm. his Bernard Archer p- p- playing Marcus Scarman, and it's interesting because in my head, for some reason, I I see him as a as a sympathetic figure. I, I mean, he's, he's painted slightly sympathetic, but actually, when you when you looking at this time, when you see him at the start, he isn't all that sympathetic there either. I mean, he's, <laughs> he, I mean basically, he's kind of you know bossing around the natives, and he's greedy for knowledge and riches or whatever. Mm. He's he, he, yeah, he's not super sympathetic. I and mean, to be honest, the, the sympathy comes more from Lawrence and, the, and and that relationship, and I suppose Warlock as well, who's who's a sympathetic character. Mm. They seem to like him, so there must be something good in him, I suppose, if both of them like him. Well, he's he's English. <laughs> Isn't that enough? And rich. 
you no, know, he's uh, yes, you're you're right. You, putting that together with um, with Giles's amazing observation that he is he is the soulful part of the mummy myth. Yeah, it's been split in twain between the visual side and the heart of that story. This this is a story where everybody dies, is it not? Mm. Pretty much. That's yeah. uh, part of a small sub sub genre of Doctor Who. It's, it's not the first, is it? Have we had any uh, this grim before? Uh, thingamajig, uh, the, the massacre, <laughs> um, I'll give it mission to the unknown, unknown. Yeah. Hmm. which which uh, sort of doesn't count in that it's well, no, it does count, I suppose, because even if the Doctor had been in it, every guest character would have died. Mm. The delegates don't die. Oh no, no, you're an idiot, Richard. <laughs> yeah, but the, but the mummies don't die. Oh wait a minute, they do. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, the robots. Sutek doesn't. Oh, he dies. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, everybody dies. Mm. Golly. Just this once. Just this once. Everybody Sarah. dies. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's um, join that club to which horror of Fang Rock will later, yeah, slightly more ostentatiously, mm. be admitted. The the poacher was supposed to live. He lived in Robert Holmes's right. uh, version, but oh, right. Paddy Russell thought he was a bit of a loose end, so right, right. she finished him off. So was he meant to just escape? Because presumably he didn't carry on into into the later episodes in any way. No, he just he just that, sort of tailed that off. That is a and he was, that is a loose end. Mm. Well, that's not like Holmes Holmes at all. He was just that's left sense. somewhere well, within yeah. the deflection barrier mm. and didn't didn't just got left behind. Played by Roberta Tovey's father. Toby's dad, of yes. course. Yeah. Uh-huh. Snap. <laughs> was he also called One Take Tovey? <laughs> <laughs> one death. One death Tovey. <laughs> It runs in the family. <laughs> One shot. Uh. <laughs> well, what an interesting connection. Mm. This and Horrifying Rock, both stories where everyone dies, both directed by Paddy Russell, mm. both stories where the Doctor is rather morose, mm. and that's partly in the writing and partly because Tom Baker didn't like the, being directed by a woman mm. and decided to act up. Mm. Is that right? Stop me if I'm if I've gone down. The well, well, yeah, I think he's... he certainly didn't get on with her in the second one. I don't know how 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 badly no. it fell out in this one. He didn't. He didn't want to go into the mummy. He's not ostentatiously walking through mm. doors. Oh yes, that's he, right. That's he the didn't want to go into the mummy suit. We know that, and she right. she insisted. Okay. She said oh. she said you're wearing anybody... that thing because people will know. And yeah, they did. You, you walk in a rather eccentric fashion. Mm. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, Liz Sladen was. I mean, she wasn't. She wasn't overtly negative about Paddy Russell, but you you get you get the sense that there was uh, friction. And she, Liz Sladen, criticised the fact that Paddy Russell did so much uh, in rehearsal. Liz Sladen said she over-rehearsed everything and that that resulted in the actors getting bored of their material and injecting stuff and and livening it up. And I found that that really curious. (laughs) Well, that's what I thought. (laughs) Because Liz Sladen ended up pointing to certain bits of business, such as like in the TARDIS where she's playing with the shawl over her head. Lovely bit. Uh, Exactly. It's it's wonderful. And Liz Sladen was saying... I hated that sort of stuff. I wish I hadn't had to do that. (laughs) I had to do it because I I thought of it in a boring rehearsal. Basically, she's saying we were so bored of doing the same stuff over and over again, we'd find interesting things to do. And I just thought... It's How weird to turn that into that's a negative. One of those, isn't, isn't, that's well, acting, she didn't really mean it? that. That's one of those strange anecdotes where somebody's somebody's put together two things they felt that aren't actually connected. Yeah. A mm. bit like a writer being told Mars and Egypt. Mm. <laughs> and she's trying to make one consistent anecdote out of it. 
Oh, yeah, but it's, it's, it's like those, you know, the stories you get from actors about how they really loved a particular story. Well, I mean, they enjoyed the social experience of working on it. it didn't actually necessarily mean it was a brilliant story. Mm. And equally, the other way around, you, you, you may have hated doing it, but actually Can't the performance actors. that you put in was great. So we enjoyed watching it. Sorry, you had a bad time while it was being made, but it's not going to make us dislike the story. You tell mm. them. <laughs> they won't listen to me. Well... How many sarcophagi out of five? <laughs> five. I mean, the problem is that, that growing up with it, it's impossible to be dispassionate about it because, you know, the, the doctor you grow up with is kind of, you know, what you expect it to be. You know, it's, it's mm. the quintessential Doctor Who. So so when, when Giles was saying that, you know, Leela was more his thing, well, um, you know, for me... 1975 is is a really kind of seminal year for 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 my viewing. Mm. At some point in 1975, I, I started to read the David Whittaker Target book, and probably by the end of 75, I've read a dozen of them. And you know, the two series were so close together that they only occupy about 15 months. So so across this period, mm. it's a concentrated chunk of Doctor Who coming into my head at the age of you know seven mm. and then eight. So so it it, it just is how I expected Doctor Who to be from from there on in, I suppose. But I think I, I still think it's a very good one. It is. Robert Holmes is very good. That's my hot take. Mm. <laughs> I wrote down. He has a penchant for a sort of lyrical quality to um, certain lines of dialogue. Just odd bits and bobs, like this is the rhythm of the Asirens, and just quirks that are slightly atypical. And I wrote down one of his script directions. Which is when the doctor has the gelignite in his hands. Mm. The doctor carries the box with tender solicitude, <laughs> and um, he's wonderful. Uh, and it's totally unnecessary to be that good in stuff no one is ever going to read, <laughs> except me. Fifty years later, <laughs> just hate to drag things back, but with regards to the, yeah. the killing off thing, it feels like there's yeah. a. I don't know. If in this, it feels very. It's just being very, very efficient with ca- with characters, and in t- in terms of it, it feels like it almost feels a bit perfunctory. That it, it just feels like okay, your bit of the plot's done. Let's kill you off. In some well, that's the Eric Sayward approach. It feels a bit. But it's always in this... when Sayward does that, it's incredibly mm. obvious that he's that it. There was no. It feels a bit that because mm. there's nothing else backing it up. It's never. Mm. It's only done for effects. It's like the comic. If the character's finished. And he thinks he can get a sh- some shock value, mm. and they'll get rid of them. But it never really feels like it's done at the right dramatic mm. point, or with anything, any higher purpose in mind. This feels, in contrast to Horror of Fang Rock, for instance, this feels a bit more like that to me than than something like Horror of Fang Rock, where you feel it's being. I, d- I don't know. I can't articulate. I can't really articulate the difference. It's, it seems but... more obvious in horror because uh, this is one of those stories where it's the it is artificially constrained to a particular locale. Mm. It's with by an invisible barrier, yeah. so so they can't escape and the small cast are trapped there. But because they can run about, have quite a lot. You kind of it's easy for your mind to lose track of how many characters there are, and they're not all in the same room together. Mm-hmm. You know, horror fan rock is more like a horror film where you your eye is constantly on the dim- diminishing small mm. cast they've been picked off one by one and you're supposed to notice that because mm. this is fundamentally a base under siege story and yeah. and it's not generally categorized as such mm. Mm. S- some of those 
deaths in horror are kind of earned, aren't they? There's a moral aspect yeah. to it. I mean, I guess looking at uh, these one, I mean, you get you get Namine dying at the end of episode one. That's I mean, that's good as a climax. It's sort of mm. you know, it's sort of giving you a sense this is a deadly threat. Warlock, yeah. I mean, I suppose again, you you just get the sense that anybody could die at any moment when he's sort of casually tossed aside at that point. There's pathos, I suppose, in Lawrence's death mm. because it's at the, it's the hand, uh, hands of his brother. The poacher does seem a bit kind of... He's just off, really, isn't he? It does. It almost... I mean, it's the closest it gets to an Eric Sayward style. Mm. Oh, that feels cruel. Couldn't you let him get away? But this probably isn't true as it wasn't. It turns out it wasn't Holmes. But it, do, it does feel to me, that even though it's not spelled out or made explicit, which is the same thing, <laughs> that it's in service of the fact of, of making this a story with a higher than usual level of mm. jeopardy and, and consequence mm. and threat. Mm. We have to see everybody die mm. for us to believe. By the time that uh, Lawrence is off off screen, mm. that's the end of the human cast, yes. isn't it? Because Marcus is already dead, mm. as yes. the Doctor points out. So, yeah, I think it's deliberate. Mm. But it's not laid on with a trowel. Mm. It's sort of... With, it creeps up on us. When is Lawrence killed? Early in part three, is it? Mid. Mid. Mm. And of course, that's when I'll come back to this, because I think, other than mummies, this is possibly the other biggest and um, unexpected parallel between this and Mummy on the Orient Express. The Doctor seemingly being callous in relation to the deaths of mm. ordinary yes. humans who yeah, are just yeah. part of his part of because he's got his eye on the bigger picture. Mm. Which I guess is kind of what Colin Baker was always trying to say his take on the Doctor was, but it never came through in the writing mm. he was given, unfortunately. Mm. But here, it's extremely simple. Mm. And they don't over-egg it. Sarah is momentarily annoyed with him. Yes. But it's written so economically, you don't seem human. Mm. And then he doesn't, you know, he doesn't berate her for being... And say, oh, you stupid bloody mm. idiot, Sarah. Why can't you see it from my angle? Mm. Why do I travel with you, you ignoramus? No, he just he's pretty kind, as kind as he can. Mm. Points out quite logically that mm. these will be the first of millions. Mm. Well, you know, what, what can you say to that? Anyway. The music is brilliant, is another mm. thing I wanted to say. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean it's, it's kind of characteristic of Doctor Music of the Era, but somehow it's it's the best I don't know it feels to me like it's it's the best I think Dudley is best when there's a chance to to mash to merge the and there's some diegetic music it somehow feeds into his score mm. and um, I don't mean literally although I, every time that organ starts up I assume it's back it's <laughs> incidental music mm. and I remember that it's actually the other characters can hear it as well mm. but it does seem to inspire him when there's um, mm. a very strong sense of place and yeah when there's a theme to latch onto, no pun intended. Yeah, he's less good when it's set on an asteroid in yes. another galaxy. And he's just got to do asteroidy music, which <laughs> is cymbals. <laughs> yeah, and then it, then it just turns into Blake Seven. Yes, any episode of Blake Seven. There's really only two other things I wanted to say about this, and they're both only two. they're both inconsequential, really. But but I love the image of the mummy caught in the animal trap. It, mm. it, 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 again, it's it sort of you're not quite sure what, what what the noise is, but it just you get that sort of relentless sense of of you know nothing's going to stop that that mummy or the robot from from being a menace to the to the poacher. 
and then from that, from the sublime to the ridiculous, I, I, I suddenly thought, I, I know that butler, and it, it's it's um, Ned, the gardener Ned from to the, the Manor Born, and, mm. and uh, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I, I was I was struggling oh, to take him seriously that after that. But I mean, you know, he's 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 good in in the role. Mm. Just going back to that that thing with the the mummy in the in the man trap. Yeah, I, I love the fact that you can you can hear it for quite a few seconds as the poacher's yeah. approaching it, uh, and it, it's that lovely sense that it's just sort of stuck in a loop for 30 seconds mm. because it's come across a thing that's not part of its usual routine. Mm. Yeah. So it, it just tries to just stamp its foot over and over again for a little while and then something else kicks in and it and it thinks that it has to deal with that in a different mm. way. It reminds me as well of the, the bit where the, the mummies fight at the end. I always liked that. I, I think people generally <laughs> poke a bit of fun at that. But I I like it from the point of view that it, it has that same kind of sort of robotic routine mm. because it is yep. two simple things. They don't fight like two creatures that there's no aggression there. No, it's just it's just well, this normally works on trying. Yeah, <laughs> so it's just well, one does it and then the other one does it and then the other one does mm. it and then the other one does it and it's just that sense that they're just going to be stuck in that loop forever mm. because they they just haven't got any better programming and I I, I like that. I like mm-hmm. robots and things. Well, I mentioned that. There are no spaceships in this, though. Oh, it's a rocket. It nearly takes off. There you mm-hmm. go. Fulfills yeah. my two criteria. Yeah. Pyramid-shaped rocket. Mm. Is it described as pyramid-shaped in the script, or is that? Yes, it is. Good. So had it arrived on Mars, then it would have satisfied the title of Pyramids of Mars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, that's a point. So assuming we take the title literally, there must be another pyramid somewhere, mm. which has nothing to do with anything that we see in this story. So there's a <laughs> there's scope ah, for a big finish, yes, a sideways <laughs> sequel. Mm. I, I think there were because at one point the uh, Asirans were from Mars, and then Horus had just crash landed there in his I think pyramid shaped spaceship, and then in the final version, there's nobody there. It's just a uh, it's just a random power generator parked for no reason on a nearby. Well, maybe planet. it's far enough away from Sutek. It's going to he's going to have it all on to get there, except of course that he managed to construct a rocket that they could have got there with. So, yeah. Why did he know. have a load of rocket components in his tomb that he then uh, teleported to be assembled hmm. in the home counties for some reason? Uh, it, it, it was the Asiran version of IKEA, I suppose. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd ordered it before he was imprisoned. I don't know. He was imprisoned with all of the components necessary to eventually aid his escape, yeah. including four force field generating things to keep his enemies at bay while he affected his rocket building process. It's almost like this is nonsense. <laughs> Garbage. This is... <laughs> Who watches this rubbish? <laughs> Any other stuff that people wanted to say I have one random fact that I wrote down because I thought it was quite interesting there are four field generators Mm. four Mm -hmm. canopic jars when fellas were buried and women I suppose they had four sets of internal organs one in each jar and each jar was represented by a sculpture of one of the sons of Horus so I thought that was kind of neat that it's technically Sutek's nephews are each of his Force field generators. Mm-hmm. Oh. Very good. Uh, <laughs> Is it? <laughs> it's very generous. 
the only thing I was going to add, just because I don't think we've mentioned him specifically, was uh, Michael Sheard. Yeah. Being jolly good in this, playing a bit mm. out of a um, different type of character from some of his others that we've seen and enjoyed, mm. but being very good. You make a good point that we don't, o- you know, that it doesn't overrate the pudding and the in perhaps the way that's but it almost feels like they don't make quite enough of the the thing of him and Marcus. It feels like that might be a slightly bigger moment than it than it is. And we got we get some of it obviously, but but it feels like he's the maybe the emotional heart of the that relationship is is there and maybe it should have been eked out a little bit longer. It's obviously an interesting relationship, isn't it? Because you know, Marcus lives in the big house and he's being sort of stuck out by the gate mm. and presumably he's the younger son mm. I mean perhaps in most families he'd have been kicked out altogether and, and had to, to, to uh, make a living but maybe they've come to an accommodation but yeah I mean obviously it's not a relationship of equals mm. they don't really go to drill into that to any great extent mm. but you feel that, that even even in the story or maybe it's the actors he has that you, know, you, you can sort of sense that he's the appeaser in that relationship. Mm, yes, he's quite schoolboyish. I mean, we don't see enough of, yeah, I guess we don't see enough of Marcus to... If you had, a few, if you had extra episodes, you could build, you could develop more of the characters before that. I'd like to know, mm. you know, we only know just, we know enough about them for this story to work. Mm. But um, I, I think you could, it'll be padding. Mm. It'll be like, you know, it'll be a prologue like the first two episodes of Seeds mm. of Doom. But seeing Marcus and Lawrence together and happier times... Mm. Might have, uh, might have been nice before he set off on his expedition. Mm. Still, there you go. Look at me. I'm always looking for an opportunity. For <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, related to that, you just reminded me, of course, that this is one of the ones that got the omnibus repeat treatment in. I think the, after after this summer, because it was a cut down. So I'm not sure whether this is anything. Whether anyone knows whether they have the whether they have the notes. I mean, obviously, on Caesar Dune, they were able to reconstruct. I'm and sure they must have something, new, whether it be an off-air, sort of, even an off-air audio would be enough for them to mm, rebuild yeah. it. It would be it? rather interesting to see, you know, I'd be interested to see Was the cut-down version. wonder if the director or producer were involved. That's normally the criterion for whether or not they think it's, you know, it's, it counts as a valid artistic mm. object in its own right that we could see reconstructed on a Blu-ray. Mm. Mm. It's a one-hour omnibus, apparently. But oh, right. Oh, right. Mm. So, which I probably saw. I didn't know they were that cut down. Mm. What, what were you going to say, Gav? Just a, a, a minor curiosity. When I finally watched the DVD version, having known the VHS uh, inside out, it was a really strange experience getting two or three extra seconds in two or three places mm-hmm. in the DVD that I'd never seen before because they're just these completely trivial trims in the VHS version as well as the uh, credits, obviously. So right. that when they're decoding the uh, the message through the Marconi scope, and I just remember watching the DVD for the first time, and the Doctor says, this repeats very often in this sentence. We'll call that the letter E, the most common letter in your alphabet. Mm. It just blew my mind. I've <laughs> never heard a reference to the letter E in Pyramids of Mars before. Yeah. It's just these strange, really arbitrary little chops. And I think the is the one bit where they're jumping out of a window... I think that was one of the oh, bits yeah. taken out of the... I mean... Oh, and I think the the only other bit I remember is uh, one of the puzzles. I don't think we see the electric shock 
the doctor nearly gets an electric shock from the button before he presses the right mm. button. That's right. out. That's gone from the VHS, and that must have totaled about fifteen seconds. Mm. I don't know. It's very strange. Unless my memory's uh, failing me, which it probably is. Talking of the decoding, isn't isn't the entire message that he decodes beware Sutek? Is there anything more to it Something than like that? that? Because that that's quite a feat to um to to I mean, okay okay E is the most common letter, but uh, but to apply that logic to yes twelve thirteen letter message yeah. is quite some feat of True. cryptography. It's, it's, it's not very it's, helpful. Yes, exactly. It's not exactly. I'm, I'm, if you train your radio I'm, I'm here, Abe Slaney. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Anyway, it's nice that they chose to write it in English anyway. Mm. Mm. Oh, good point. Yes. Mm.